Hello and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. Yes, friends, it's good math sense. Eternity divided by two still equals eternity because it's the heart of Jesus' story from Matthew chapter 20. And I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of the gospel, which you'll hear this Sunday. Jesus told his disciples this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out at dawn to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with them for the usual daily wage, he sent them into the vineyard. Going out about nine o'clock, the landowner saw others standing in the marketplace, and he said to them, You too go into my vineyard, and I will give you what is just. And so they went off. And so around noon, he did the same thing. At three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock, right around quitting time, he did the same thing. So when Jesus is talking about the vineyard, he's talking about the kingdom of God, the new Israel. And so he summons people at the end for their payment. Some of the laborers and give them their pay, the gospel says, beginning with the last and ending with the first. Even those who had started about five o'clock came and each received the usual daily wage. So when the first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also got the usual wage. And on receiving it, they grumbled against the landowners saying, these last ones worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who bore the day's burden in the heat. He said to one of them in reply, my friend, I am not cheating you. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what is yours and go. What if I wish to give this last one the same as you? Or am I not free to do as I wish with my own money? Are you envious because I'm generous? Thus the last will be first and the first will be last. Envy, of course, is that sin where you can't be happy for someone else's good fortune uh, and it destroys a relationship with them because you resent them and you're unhappy with what you have. So it's the sin that kills on both ends. That's why they call it the green-eyed monster, and it's one of the spiritual sins of the seven deadly sins. But what's at the heart of this teaching? You can take this parable about the vineyard and these different wage earners and come up with a good moral on why envy is self-destructive. But really what it's about is the kingdom of heaven. St. Augustine says that it's all about eternity. And so if you show up at the beginning and you work hard, you're a cradle Catholic, you're a covenant Jew, and you show up and you work hard and you please God, your reward is eternity. If uh, you're just a shlemiel who spends their whole life cheating other people, and right at the end, just before you die, you sincerely repent of your sins and give your heart to Christ and try to serve him and respond to the truth as best you can, your reward is eternity. Eternity doesn't know half measures. That's why eternity divided by two, by three, by four, by five, by whatever, still equals eternity. But what do we mean when we talk about eternity? And that's what I would like to talk about, a timeless understanding of heaven that comes right to us out of Scripture. And so, a biblical tour of heaven, this week on Oro Valley Catholic. In 1911, Joe Hill, a labor activist who was fairly anti-Christian, wrote a parody of a Salvation Army song 
uh, called The Sweet By and By. You remember it? In the sweet by and by, you will cross to that marvelous shore, something like that. Well, in The Preacher and the Slave, he mocked it because he claimed that what Christians preached was to tolerate injustice in this world because God would make you happy in the world to come. Well, it's really the gospel message upside down. It is true that uh, this is never going to be heaven, this world, but we're supposed to work to keep this world from getting as bad as it can get. That's St. Augustine. So when Joe Hill wrote his song, here's how it went. Long-haired preachers come out every night, try to tell you what's wrong and what's right. But when asked how about something to eat, they will answer in voices so sweet. You will eat by and by in that glorious land above the sky. Work and pray, live on hay. You'll get pie in the sky when you die. Now you probably never heard that song, but you probably have heard the phrase, pie in the sky when you die. Is that how you think about eternity in heaven? Because heaven and the world are linked and they're linked sacramentally and they're linked through Christ. So they're not two completely separate places. St. Paul preaches like that, that the old and the new world are overlapped. They're not two separate entities. And so when you think about eternity, First thing is to recognize that the world you and I live in, a world of time and space, of aging and death, um, that's all working out against the background of eternity. Uh, outside of the cosmos, eternity reigns because there's not time and space. I suppose if we're going to be completely rational, there is no outside of, uh, of the cosmos because space is just the distance between two points. And when there is no two points and there is no uh, sun that comes up and goes down, there's no clocks. Um, this is how St. Augustine thought about eternity. And to think about the kingdom of heaven, which is what Jesus is talking about today in the gospel, when he talks about these laborers who at the end of the day get all the same reward, he is talking about the eternal nature of the new Jerusalem that is that is uh, going to replace this world. Um, but somehow this world as a sacramental sign points towards that new Jerusalem. And why do we say that? Why is this world a sacramental sign? Because the real discussion of what heaven is like and eternity is like is contained in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. You know, people have different ideas about eternity. Uh, if you remember the old uh, film, I think 1977, starring George Burns and uh, De uh, John Denver called Oh God, uh, it, it kind of made a joke about God and religion and, and uh, these very small ideas of God that make it very easy to, re to reject God. All those George Burns is always funny. Um, but then you get a bestseller by Randy Alcorn, who is an evangelical, about heaven, criticizing past views of what he calls Christoplatonism, and that's the idea of some Christians, you can figure out who he's pointing to, uh, believe that life after death will be disembodied. This is clearly not Catholics. Catholics have a very embodied understanding of reality, uh, that all of reality is in fact sacramental. 
it points to make present what God is going to do in the future. But Revelations 21 does have a vision of heaven, and it's a very embodied view. And as we think about what eternity is, we ought to talk about Revelations 21. And so here's how it starts. Then I, that's John, uh, John the visionary, saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's where you and I are living. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we don't go up to heaven. Heaven's coming down to us. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold the dwelling, which literally is the tabernacling. Just like we have a tabernacle where the Eucharist is, where God dwells amongst us, tabernacling is about dwelling. And so behold, the tabernacling of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, behold, I make all things new. Also he said, write this for these words are trustworthy and true. And so the new heaven coming down from heaven, um, that actually becomes heaven and earth united, like the sacrament of the Eucharist, which is this eschatological sacrament, this embodied sense of the presence of eternity amongst us. You know, uh, Christians have always had fun with this, especially artists. Dante, who wrote the Divine Comedy, remember that's a story where he goes through hell, he goes through purgatory, and then he goes through Paradiso, he calls it, but stops short of the presence of God because in the Paradiso, he's going to go back to heaven. So the new heaven has not come down yet. This is not heaven as Revelations 21 is talking about or this new kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about. And so the souls that he encounters there are this in-between state as the old world gives way to the new world. And so in when we preach or we together recite the Nicene Creed, we remember that this world that Jesus has promised is coming down to us. And so we say, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Why have Christians kind of uh, premised, and really atheists also, humanity, that we give pride of place to our mental uh, picture of the world as opposed to embodied existence? It's really at the heart of some of our struggles um, in American culture, gender dysphoria, the idea that I'm in the wrong kind of body. I mean, that's a very Gnostic understanding of, um, of reality that somehow... I am not my body, I should have a different body. The Greeks would have looked at it like that, but that's not a Christian way of looking at the, the body. Um, and so when we think about the struggles that we have, whether it's in how people misuse their bodies sexually, uh, the struggles that people have with gender identity, the Christian way of understanding it is we live in a fallen world, people are broken. They need to be accompanied. They need to be loved. But at the end of the day, 
We are our bodies. Maybe they don't function correctly. Maybe our brains don't function correctly, but this is who we are. And salvation is coming to us. The kingdom is not of this world, but it begins here. It begins here because how you and I live. So let's talk about some of the hallmarks of the new Jerusalem and what eternity looks like according to chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. First, let's talk about the difference between heaven and hell because we human beings could understand something in contrast and see what the difference is and why the difference is important. And so this is from Revelations 21 of verses 6 to 11. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the fountain of water of life without payment. He who conquers shall have this heritage. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came out one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plague, plagues and spoke to me saying, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So let's talk about that. First, this new city that comes down. It really is, uh, if you go back to the book of Je uh, Exodus, when Jesus, I mean Moses and the 70 elders go up the mountain and they have uh, dinner with God, and they're looking up into heaven, and they're looking through this. It's like Jasper. It's clear, and they can see up into heaven. But obviously, the detail about Jasper comes out of Exodus. Um, but that the city comes down. The city is organized. The city is guarded by angels. The 12 gates all have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the foundation of that city, that new city that restored Israel, are the 12 apostles. So that the first image we have of what the New Jerusalem looks like is it's the fulfillment of the promise to the Jewish people. They're as much a part of this as are the Christian people. God somehow brings this all together at some point into one unified city. Why is it that there are three gates pointing in every direction of the compass? Is it because in heaven there's still a magnetic north and a south and all of that? No. It goes back again to the story of the people in the desert. When the people, all 12 tribes, are wandering through the desert, they build a tabernacle, a dwelling place for God. That's what tabernacle means and why we have a dwelling place, a tabernacle, in the midst of St. Mark Church. And how Moses is told to distribute the people is three tribes on the west, three tribes on the east, three tribes on the north, and three tribes on the south. And so the point of the city with the gates pointing out in compass directions 
is so that all the souls of all those tribes might enter into God's city. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about the city of God. But since verses 6 to 11 of Revelations 21 does take the time to talk about hell, it's instructive, I think, to see how book of Revelations sees hell differently than it sees heaven. And so here's what it says. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So everybody goes through the first death. That's how you get off this planet. And then come back with, I guess, the new Jerusalem coming down of heaven to us where the resurrection will take place. Uh, but we're not present amongst the living here anymore when we die. Um, but the second death, because it is death, think about what it does. What it merges is the idea of drowning with the idea of burning to death, which is a pretty awful way of thinking about what hell is like, uh, that you can't breathe, um, that there's nothing from the exterior to you. You just have where the worm and the flame does not die, as Jesus says. And so that hell is this chaotic existence. Um, lakes of fire and sulfur, this is not organized. The description of the city of God has structure to it. It's organization. There is a place for everybody and you fit into it. In the lake, you're just all thrown in there, all treated the same. And so we pray like we pray with Our Lady of Fatima when you pray the rosary um, and you finish saying the Gloria, you say, oh my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell, Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. It's a great prayer because we have to remember that calling people into union with God, it is for all people. Jesus died for all. Maybe in the end, not everybody responds to him. These are things that Jesus himself has taught, taught us. So we all just wait and see, I guess. Um, but there's one thing I, I couldn't walk by. And that's the other famous movie about heaven. Do you remember it? Do dogs go to heaven? Because the name of the movie is All Dogs Go to Heaven. Well, we knew Catholic dogs go to heaven anyway. But there is this thing in the New Testament in verses Revelations 22, chapters 14 to 15, about dogs not going to heaven. And I have to read it to you because it is about hell. Behold, I am coming soon. This is verses 14 and 15 of Revelations 22. Tuck this away in your Bible knowledge. Behold, I am coming soon. I bring with me the recompense I will give each according to his deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are they who wash the robe so as to have the right to the tree of life and enter the city through its gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the unchaste, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love and practice deceit. You know, people love dogs. You can't believe that they hang out with all the worst people on the planet. Um, and so really what's being talked about is um, biblical categories of cleanness and uncleanness, and it's metaphorical. What happens when you just don't have a place in your life for God? Uh, dogs are unclean because they don't have the right hoofs. And so uh, the Jewish people uh, wouldn't apparently have dogs, Orthodox Jews, and they sure as heck wouldn't eat them, um, which is in some sense good for dogs. But the bigger sense is 
is it's really not talking about the nature of the New Jerusalem, which is a complete redemption of the cosmos as we understand it. So let's go to the next part of Oral Valley Catholic. Let's talk about the, the size of the New Jerusalem and the shape and the river of life. So why does the book of Revelation, chapter 21, describe heaven as a new city? So let's, let's uh, read those verses. And he who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square its length, the same as its breadth. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. That's, by the way, 1,500 miles. Its length and breadth and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by a man's measure. That is an angel's. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, which I don't know what that is, and the twelfth amethyst. And the gates were twelve pearls, big pearls. Each of the gates were made of a single pearl, one massive pearl, or people get smaller. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. So these are things that don't really exist in the current world, but they're used as a metaphor for understanding. So first of all, imagine a city 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, a perfect square with these gates pointing out into every direction. Why a city? Well, if you remember in the ancient world, there were not nations. Um, they're not in the way we think of nationalism. When they meant Nathan, nations, they meant ethnicities. Uh, but fundamentally, the political organization was the city. The word politics comes from polis, which means city. And so organization, the pinnacle of human culture, is the city. That's why you have Athens, or you have Rome, or you have um, Sparta is another famous one. And so none of those cities are 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. And so to understand the first century is to understand that the city of God dwarfs any city that's on earth. And so uh, in 1 Kings, it, it, it's about the Holy of Holies, because the question is, when you talk about the shape of the city, which is a perfect square, why? Because the cubicle, the place where the Holy of Holies was, the inner sanctuary, according to 1 Kings 6, it says, the inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 12 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. So it's narrow in the front, but its height and its width is the same. And so from at least some angles, the Holy of Holies is, um, is a complete square, just like the city of God. So the city of God is this perfected square that uh, the Holy of Holies of the Jerusalem temple points toward. And so the, the inner sanctuary of the Holy of Holies is in some way a, a measure of 
uh, what the city of God is? Or why is it that there are all these jewels on the city of God, right? Remember, there's 12 jewels, and you've probably done the math and said, well, there's 12 apostles and there are 12 tribes. But here's what Ezekiel chapter 8, um, chapter 28 says about the jewels that were on the ephod, which is the breastplate over the heart of the high priest. And there's th 12 jewels there, and so 12 jewels in the city of God, 12 jewels that fit on the ephod over the heart of the, of the high priest. Here's what Ezekiel says. And you shall make a breastplate of judgment and skilled work, like the work of the ephod you shall make it. It shall be square and double, a span its length and a span its breadth. So it's, it's a square. And you shall set in it four rows of stones, a row of sardis, topaz, and carbuncle should be the first row, the second row an emerald, sapphires, and a diamond, and the third row jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row beryl, onyx, and jasper. Notice that they're the same stones. And they shall set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. And they shall be like the signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment upon his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to continual remembrance for the Lord. And in the breastplate piece of judgment, you shall put in the Urim and the Thummim. They shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. So what do those jewels represent? You and me. Um, they're each a jewel, beautiful to God, that comes into the Holy of Holies. Josephus talked about an old rabbinic legend that said when the high priest put those jewels onto his breast and went into the Holy of Holies, they glowed. You know, St. Peter probably is referring to this very mystery in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 12. Come to the Lord, the living stone, rejected by people as worthless, but chosen by God as valuable. Come as living stones and let yourselves be used in building the spiritual temple where you will serve as holy priests to offer spiritual and acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And so we've talked about heaven and hell in contrast. We've talked about why there's 12 gates, why there's 12 foundation stones of, of the apostles, what the size of the city of God is, emulating the holy of holies, uh, and then the jewels that are in all the gates and the pearls, that they, these are the jewels and pearls that are the people of God. Um, but how about the most important part? And it's the river of life. And it says that the river of life comes from the throne of God and the Lamb. And so think about the Trinity represented in this, in this reading from Revelations 22, verses 1 through 7. And then he showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were healing of the nations. There shall be no more anything accursed but the throne of God, and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall worship him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads and night shall be no more. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. That's from Isaiah. And they shall reign forever and ever. 
And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy book. And so this is Christian hope. And so the river, what is it? Well, it flows from the throne of God, the Father, the Lamb, the Son, and the river of life, it's the Holy Spirit. It's how you and I dwell in the presence of God. It's why Jesus says in the Gospel of John that if he doesn't ascend to heaven, then the Spirit can come. And the Spirit is how we dwell in God. It's why we have the sacrament of confirmation. And so the Holy Spirit um, is this fountain of life that uh, Jesus refers to several times in the Gospels, uh, especially in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and proclaimed, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and let he who believes in me drink. As the scriptures has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, which those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Where does that understanding of the scripture uh, come from, the Holy Spirit? Well, it goes back again to the Old Testament and Ezekiel chapter 47. So Ezekiel is this prophet in the exile from the city of Jerusalem, which has been destroyed by the Babylonians. But it's coming in the future because God does not like graves. And so here's the story about Ezekiel and the same river that's described in the book of Revelation. Because Ezekiel, the visionary, is having a vision of heaven. Um, which is going to be fulfilled um, in, in the new covenant. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces towards the east. And the water was coming out on the south side, Going on eastward with a line in his hand, he, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. And again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was up to the loins. Again he measured a thousand, it was the river that I could not pass through. For the water had risen, it was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Finishing the story, flows down to the Dead Sea and gives it life. Trees grow in the Dead Sea, fish in the Dead Sea. So what's this referring to, this river? Uh, well, how many baptisms have taken place since Jesus died and rose from the dead? Have baptisms grown exponentially since the first century? Not much of a mystery, really. The waters of baptism are like a great river flowing from the Holy of Holies and drawing all of creation to itself. This has been another edition of Oral Valley Catholic. Give me a like.